Okay, well, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you that we can be together today. We thank you that we can look at your word. Lord Jesus, we ask and pray your blessing on this time together. Lord, ultimately, we ask and pray that you would um, help us to build a uh, proper theology of, of suffering so that we might um, have that in place before hard times come into our lives. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith in your goodness, regardless of what's going on in our lives. Lord, uh, to trust in your promises that you work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord Jesus, we ask and pray that you would make us faithful uh, witnesses as we talk to people uh, in their suffering and as we try to bring uh, comfort in, uh, in Jesus and in, in, in you, Lord, um, that you would bless that. And so we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so for those of you who are new, which is over half of you today, um, <clears throat> we started talking about the problem of evil last time and why God allows suffering. And just by way of review, just to kind of catch you up in the conversation, we were talking about how there are sort of two different ways that we want to talk about and try to tackle this question or this issue. One is a philosophical approach and one is a pastoral approach. So there's a, a logical answer to the problem of evil, uh, uh, you know, but there's also a pastoral problem or a pastoral response to the problem of evil. And we talked last time about how most people when they're asking this question, they're um, there's some kind of experience or something that has happened either to them uh, in, in their own history or in their family history or something. There's a reason usually behind the question. So one of the things that we ought to do is try to ask uh, why, you know, get, get, try to listen, try to talk to them about why they're asking this question, what's going on behind the scenes uh, to see if we can uh, unpack some of that. Now, if a person has something, if it's, you know, way back in their history, we might take a logical approach, but if it's something current in their history, then we're probably going to want to take a more uh, pastoral approach uh, to the way that we handle the question. So, <clears throat> it's kind of what we talked about last time. We talked about um, this question, why does God permit evil? If God exists and he is all-loving and all-powerful and all-wise, then why is there suffering and evil? Um, so we started to, to try to talk about that. And one of the answers to that question is that that question assumes uh, a, at least a couple of things. One, it assumes that we know better than God. It assumes that we know what the best possible world would be, i.e. a world without suffering, a world without pain or evil. So it assumes that we know that, um, but that's a pretty big um, assumption because we don't know that that might be the wisest and best course of action. Uh, so we talked about that last time. Uh, we started also, we talked about the different kinds of suffering. Where does suffering come from? Um, and three main places that suffering comes from. Uh, we live in a fallen, broken world, right? Because of sin. The world itself is broken. So we get suffering, or pain, evil, in three, in three directions. Rita and Marsha, do you guys remember what those are? Sorry to put you on the spot. Our own sin. Our own sin often brings suffering. We have there are consequences for our own actions, our own sin. So that's one. Another person, another person's sin. Yes, somebody else's sin can bring suffering into our life. Their bad actions, their bad words, etc., etc. Um, and it's important to start to draw some of these distinctions because when we're suffering, not we have to remember that not all of it is because of our own sin, right? I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody who's in the middle of going through something very difficult and they. They say something like, I don't know what I did to bring this on myself. Or, 
I don't know, I've confessed every sin that I can possibly think of, but I'm still going through this. That sort of thing. You have to remember, not all, not all suffering is because of our own sin. Sometimes it's because of the sin of other people. And there's a third um, major source then. Do you remember? Isn't, is it chastening from, by the Lord? Well, <clears throat> we did talk about that, but more here I'm thinking of the fact that because the world is broken, we have things like tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanoes, and we have cancer and illness and disease and death. We have all these things that come as a result of the fall that are just part of the broken world. Uh, and remember, uh, we, we read Romans 8, how the world itself groans and is eager for redemption. Because it wants to be, it wants to be put right too. Um, so, okay, what did I miss? Did I miss anything from last time? Is by way of review. I'm gonna keep pressing on. Just we have to be very empathetic when we're yeah. approaching someone who's suffering. Yeah. Not like we know the answers, but more like we're willing to listen. Yeah. No, that's such a good point. Yeah, we didn't. Uh, we did not talk deeply about that, but that's such a good point. And we did talk last time as well about the fact that we're going to get to. I don't know if we'll get to it today or next week, but God gives actually several reasons for why he allows and why he uses suffering. I mean, I have nine on my list. Uh, that's more than we might think initially. Mm -hmm. Like, why? But they're general reasons, it, not specific. Usually when people are suffering, what do they want to know? Specifically. They want to know specifically why are you doing this? Like, why me? Why this? Why now? Why? But the problem is, is we, we often don't get, in fact, I don't know if we ever get the specifics. Maybe sometimes, but pretty rare. Would you put a fourth category of, like, spiritual attacks? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the devil comes and, and attacks us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Job's a great illustration of that um, yeah yeah oh man I'm thinking today about the sermon about how Jesus overcomes the darkness yeah and uh, what a great hope that we have and the devil is definitely part of that 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 whole whole complex of darkness okay um I was thinking about this, and I don't really have a lot of notes on this, so maybe we can just jam about this for a little bit, just talk uh, together. Uh, I was thinking about, um, you know, okay, this is apologetics class, and we're trying to figure out as a class, how do we respond to people who bring this up? And... Of course, some of what we're doing is we're going to be talking to non-believers, and then some of what we're going to be doing is talking to believers. And some of that, that's obviously going to change how we discuss this, right? But <clears throat> I was thinking about how we want to use the word to, to bring the word to bear on this issue, um, primarily because we want to show, when we get to the place where we start looking at the reasons why God allows Suffering. What's up? Is this your last one? For now. Oh. Forever? For now. Oh. I like that. Thank you for adding that. Um, we want to bring the word to bear because um, we want to help show that that there are good good reasons, like why this could happen. Does that make sense? Sort of getting at answering the the assumption that the best of all possible worlds is the one that doesn't have any suffering in it at all, right? But I was thinking about two other uh, responses. One is that the problem of evil is not simply a problem for Christians. Absolutely. Right? Correct. Um, 
one thought that I had was, uh, if God doesn't exist, why do you care? Like, in other words, if the world is just, if we're just all bags of molecules bumping into each other, just it's just all random chance, it's all evolution, it's, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, why would you even care about evil? Does it make sense? If it's happening to you, you'd care. But why? Because it hurts. Sure. <laughs> but I mean, like, should we be upset about it? I think if I Just do. a personal thing? Just like, oh, this, I don't like this. So the reason we care about evil is I don't like it. That's one. I mean, if you're in the midst of suffering, absolutely, I agree. Yeah. It also made me think of our first discussion about how um, the mo about, about the moral argument for God. Do you remember back to that? That's a long time ago. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, you're, they're assuming that there is such a thing as evil, right? But how do you know that? Does this make sense? I'm, I'm bringing this up because it's a way for us to sort of uh, reverse the question and... Um, you remember we talked about offensive and defensive apologetics? Um, this is a way for us to sort of go on offense and make them sort of answer their answer questions themselves. Because there are some other assumptions here, one of them being there is such a thing as evil. That this is like, this is wrong, right? Um, and then another thought that I had, which isn't fully formed, is many people use a free will defense here. What's a free will defense, Gavin? It's a uh, God-made free moral agents. And so like, evil is the result of their free choice to choose evil. Yeah. And what's the goal of the free will argument? Uh, to not have a reformed idea. <laughs> 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 yes. Um, Another way we might say that in more maybe common terms is to get God off the hook for the suffering in the world, right? Um, we don't like the idea that God might be behind the bad things, right? So when, when Joseph responds to uh, his brothers at the end of the story, do you remember what he says? You meant for it for evil, but God used it for good. It's meant in both places mm -hmm. it's not God it's not you meant it for evil but God allowed it for good or but God used it for good it's but God meant it for good um, like we don't like that thought we, we struggle with that we wrestle with that God's sovereignty is not an easy thing all the time so the free will defense is a way of trying to get God off the hook for suffering Right? Correct. Like, um, there are these free moral agents that God allows to work in the world that he is not in control of. And they are, they are able to bring evil and suffering and so forth. Right? Amen. What's the problem with that? What is one problem with the free will defense? It's God isn't sovereign then. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And what's the what's the problem? Sorry, yeah, hold that. What's the problem with that? God isn't sovereign. Because he is sovereign. <laughs> well, yes, but but what? Yes, there's no control. Um, what do you lose if you lose God's sovereignty? You lose the guarantee that God is going to actually finally overcome evil. If there, is a, if there is a force, if there is an evil in this world that it, it is outside of God's power and that can work apart from him and that God cannot stop or overcome, you lose the guarantee that God will win victory over evil in the end. There's no guarantee. What else is a problem? You were going to say something, Gavin? It doesn't account for tragedies that's beyond human control. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't answer the third. Before you got here, we were going through these causes again. The third one we listed was precisely that. We live in a broken world. There's disease, there's tornadoes, that sort of thing. That kind of tragedy that's outside of human control. Um, 
if we deny this, we also lose God's, God doesn't know the future anymore. God actually doesn't know what's going to happen. He's waiting around to find out how these free agents are going to respond. And then he knows. So it leads us to a, um, a false doctrine called open theism where you don't, God doesn't know the future. That's a problem. Uh, does God know the future? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're going to see that today. God, <laughs> God fulfilled prophecy, which he declared 700 years before uh, John the Baptist was born. <laughs> He's not going to send this guy, right? Um, so yeah, he knows the future. Um, so it leads us to uh, it leads us to some difficult places. So um, I don't think that the free will defense is uh, the best way to try to approach this this question. Well, let's look at let's look at these um, three objections here from Scripture. Good morning. Good morning. There's more coming. There's more coming. Great. We're slowly growing. Um, all right, God is not powerful enough to stop evil. Let's. Is it okay if we look at some Bible texts? Yes. Is that okay? Is that all? It's okay. Absolutely. You guys are all Christians. You're like, yeah, we have to say yes. All right. I would want to. All right. This is Job 42 verses 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, "I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted." Jeremiah 32:27 Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? What's the implied answer? No. No, nothing is too hard for him. Uh, Isaiah 14, 27. What's the reference on that one? That's Jeremiah 32, 27. Uh, Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Isaiah 14, 27. Nobody can stop God from doing what God wants to do. Nobody. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Psalm 135, 6. And then Isaiah 46, 10. God says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So what's our, what's our answer to the objection that God, uh, that evil in the world tells us that God is not powerful enough to stop it? No, the Bible makes it clear that God is all-powerful. He can do whatever he pleases. No one can thwart his purposes. He's more powerful than evil, and he can stop it at any time. Um, we know and trust two things. One, that God can overcome evil. And two, God is in the process of doing exactly that through Jesus. This is one of the things that Angie brought up last week. We didn't mention this in our review, but the idea here, another assumption in the question is, um, hey, if God is all-powerful, all-good, all-loving, etc., uh, why, why is there evil? It assumes that God's going to let it go on forever. <clears throat> like, God isn't ever going to do anything about evil. But is that the story? No. God's in the process of, of, of fixing it all. So eventually, yeah, we are going to get to the place where there is no evil, there is no suffering in this, in, in anywhere, right? Well, except for hell. Um, there'll be, it'll be, it'll be really terrible there. It's hard to think about that. It is. Um, okay, what about God is not really good? Um, if God is all-powerful, then why doesn't he get rid of evil? He must not really be good. That's the logic. Uh, the assumption is that a truly good God will not tolerate any evil in the world. Okay, what's the Bible say? John, 1 John 1, 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Matthew 5, 48. Hello, men. Uh, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, how about... Uh, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true, Psalm 18.30. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. Wow. 
a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Deuteronomy 32, 4. Okay, so what's our answer here from the Bible? God's not good. God is good, and he permits evil actually in his compassion. In his compassion? Why compassion? Because otherwise everyone would be wiped away. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of good to a uh, ask and answer the question, well, like, well, what, like, what would you want God to do in order to solve the problem of evil? Do you know what I mean? Um, like, <laughs> like, to what extent do you want him to eradicate evil? Because <laughs> um, you better watch out. <laughs> well, right? Yeah. I mean, are we just talking about, like, rape and incest and murder? Or are we talking about, like, gossip and, and lying and, you know, lustful thoughts or pride. <laughs> and, and how would he eliminate all of that, right? Uh, so yeah, that's a great point. It's a great way to sort of begin this conversation and, and say like, well, what, what, what would you want it to look like, right? Um, okay. We see that God's holy and perfect and righteous and just even in the midst of the things that happen, right? That doesn't change his character. And we're going to see some of the purposes that God has, how God can bring good from these things, right? If you guys want a an extra book to read because you don't have anything else to do and you're looking <laughs> for something to read, um, there is this book called All Things for Good. It's by a Puritan. I think it's Thomas Watson, I think. Uh, but I know the title is All Things for Good. And the whole book, it's like one of those... You know, it's like just a little book, not super, super thick, but it's basically, it's just an exposition of Romans 8, 28 and 29, two verses, the whole book. Um, and it's great. It's really encouraging if you want a, a little extra reading. And it's not like, oh, this is a Puritan. I'm never going to be able to handle it. No, you, it's, it's great. It's good. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, here we know and trust that God is perfectly and completely good in everything that he says and does. All right. What about God doesn't care about evil? He's not really loving. He might be powerful. He might be good. But he just doesn't care about what happens to us on earth. He created the world and now he, he just he's just letting it run on its own. What's the word for that? You guys know? False. Yeah, it's false. <laughs> that is the word. That's deism, right? God just sort of wound up the clock and then he lets it run and he doesn't he's not actually engaged in the world. He doesn't really care about what's going on. And he's powerful and he's good, but he's not he's not compassionate. He's not engaged. He's not involved with what's going on. How would you respond to that? He made us in his own image mm -hmm. because he wanted to have interaction in our lives with with him. Yeah. What are some of the examples like if you were trying to from scripture say like, okay, we know God has interaction with us in our life. What are those things? What, where would you try to establish that truth? Prayer. Mm -hmm. Worship. Mm -hmm. um, parables. Well, in the parables. Okay. Anyone in particular? He uses the father of certain fathers or certain men who can spread the word throughout those who will, who will listen. Okay. And he tries to get, you know, I can't think of Abraham or, or hmm. uh, um, David, David, and they are, he uses them as, as guides to uh, <clears throat> to how we should be and well that's true right it is good and I mean yes God the Bible does say in first Corinthians 10 all these things that are written down in the Bible happen as and as an example for us we are meant to learn from the lives of these people like you're talking about and ultimately the the perfect life is Christ but on the flip side like you also point out rightly 
we fall miserably short. Amen? Amen. Which is why we need the gospel. It's why we preach the gospel. And why we still need the gospel as Christians, because we continue to mess up, right? We need it to be saved, but we also need it for ongoing growth and sanctification. So, that's good. There are so many texts that talk about how God is involved in this world. We could think of all the things that God is over, sovereign over. I mean, it's a ridiculous amount of texts. I, I've listed a ton of them. I don't know if you remember from the sermon a couple of weeks ago um, when we talked about how God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We talked about all those things. Do you remember the long list? Um, he's intimately involved, right? There's that verse from James. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Well, okay, you're alive because God is involved. But if you think about it, if if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. That covers everything. <laughs> like, like that, it's in total, everything, right? It's all in his hands. Um, but we also have... Verses like Psalm 8-4, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? We have, um, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Uh, we, we, have, we have God who tells us to cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't remember the verse. It's Peter something. I, somebody look it up. Do a Google search. That's what, that's, that's what Google's for. Um, okay, so if that's true, then why? why? Why suffering in this world? If he's a good and loving God, if he wants us to take refuge and seek his grace and, and strength and comfort, if he cares about us, well, we would say as Christians, evil exists because of the fall. Evil entered through Adam's sin. Moreover, God is sovereign, and he chooses to permit evil in this world for a certain period of time, but he's going to deal with it one day forever. He's in the process of redeeming sinful man through Jesus Christ, and in the meantime, God uses evil to accomplish his purposes, turning evil for good. Go ahead. Question. Yeah. Uh, if, if evil, we, we believe that evil entered our world with the fall by even pre-existed that with, uh, yeah. with the serpent, with Satan. Yeah. But, we, but we're unclear on the timeline of, of those events. And so, and, and obviously, Scripture alludes to the pride mm-hmm. of, of Lucifer, but, and so fault was found in him, but we don't know a whole lot more than that. So it, it is somewhat ambiguous to us because we have you know, opaque at best understanding of the spirit world. Yeah. Well, and where is Satan in the fall? Like, what's, what's, where's he at and what's he doing? He's deceiving. Deceiving, yeah. Yeah, he's there. He's at work, right? Yeah. So it's a good distinction. Um, Okay. I want to, I want to start to try to, um, Talk about some of the theology here um, of God and evil. And I'm going to take us to um, this This material. is is This is why Faith Baptist does not allow uh, nice save. anything. Goodness. Here, let me just use my suit coat. No! It's going too far. Feels like that would be like a crazy move. That would take the entire box of Phoenixes. Thankfully, there's like a little... um, there's like a little ridge. It's so coming down. Most of it just... Uh, yeah, it stopped at the ridge. Stopped at the ridge. Um, <laughs> I feel like this is an illustration of what we're talking about today. (laughs) Somehow, you're the illustration queen. Let's work this into it. Every mom is like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So funny. Um, 
funny, not funny. Two, two or three Sundays ago, you know how like kids can go, they go get hot chocolate. Yeah. Somebody went and got a hot chocolate, and during the prayer time, during the scuffle, their cup got tipped over. The hot chocolate was all over the floor. So the parent went to go and get the paper towels and cleaned it all up, and immediately the cup was tipped over oh, again. <laughs> it was hot chocolate everywhere again, and it was like, it was like the dad was like, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> It was, it was actually really funny. Um, Except you worked the day. For the spectators. For, yeah. Somehow there was some left to spill twice. Yes. They're actually more than you would think. You, you, you might think like, oh, they got it all out the first time. But nope, there was quite a bit still in there. Oh, man. Um, and honestly, in that moment, I thought two things. Praise God for tile floors. And second, this is exactly why faith doesn't want open cups. And then I think because that, because you spill it and then you immediately spill it again, you know. Um, it's funny. It's funny. Okay. So you're going to develop a smart cup. I think that, that there's a pattern in the making here where. They have those. They're called sippy cups. <laughs> they, already ha- they already have the smart cup. <laughs> it's called a sippy cup. And I would love to see all of us as adults drinking from sippy cups. Drinking our coffee through a sippy cup. What? See, that's the, that's the adult version of a sippy cup right there. Oh. That's so funny. Sorry about that. <laughs> it was, why, does, why does God allow still coffee? Yeah. <laughs> In this case, to humble Steve. <laughs> it's funny how all of us know exactly what the purpose is in your suffering in this moment. We know exactly. No, no ambiguity there whatsoever. See, this is supposed to be. It is filled. I just didn't close it. It's so funny. Can't fix it. You blame the manufacturer then. Huh? No, I just didn't twist it. Uh. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to talk some about... Um, I want to look at some of the theology a little bit more. And th- this is coming from uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Uh, is the theology of evil? The theology of what? Yeah, I want to look at God and evil. That sort of building that theology and how do we think about that Um, so this is from uh, yeah this is from his systematic theology book pages 322 to 331 at least in the old version if you have the new version the pages might be different Um, this is like a subsection of of his chapter on providence where he's dealing with God's providence God's sovereignty Um, so and I want to read an ex- uh, sort of a long quote, but um, before I read that quote, when we look at Scripture, one of the things that we see is that God does indirectly cause evil events to come about and evil deeds to be done. Indirectly. Here's the quote. But we have to remember that in all these passages, it is also very clear that Scripture nowhere shows God as directly doing anything evil but rather as bringing about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures. Moreover, Scripture never blames God for evil or shows God as taking pleasure in evil, and Scripture never excuses human beings for the wrong that they do. However, we understand God's relationship sorry, however we understand God's relationship to evil, we must never come to the point where we think that we are not responsible for the evil that we do, or that God takes pleasure in evil, or that he is to be blamed for it. Such a conclusion is contrary to Scripture. End quote. Now, that paragraph assumes several, you know, it's making several points. And so it might be helpful to just list them out. We're affirming the following things. God brings about evil events through the willing actions of moral creatures. That's a very easy thing to say, but understanding that is where the mystery lies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, like we talked about in the sermon a few weeks ago, actually twice, um, we're going to come up to the place eventually where we say 
we don't, there's a mystery here that we cannot fully understand and fully solve. We're affirming these things to be true because Scripture affirms them to be true, and we want to hold them both up equally without denying any of them. Does it make sense? So, second, God's not responsible or to be blamed for evil. God is not the author of sin and evil in the world. Third, God doesn't take pleasure in evil. Fourth, humans are always responsible for the wrong that they do. Again, how all that fits together, how God's sovereignty, man's responsibility fit together is a mystery. So we can wrestle with this all day long, but eventually we're going to get to the place where we have to bow before God because he's God and we're not, and we don't understand this. Right? We're going to have to get to the place where we say, okay, Lord, you're the Lord, you're God, I'm not, I trust you. Are you with me? You win. Yep. You say that again? You win. God wins. You win. He, he wins. <laughs> All right. So then what Grudem does is he spends quite a bit of time trying to lay out examples uh, to show that, um, to, to demonstrate this theology. D- does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, Joseph is one that we mentioned already. Uh, his brothers sinned with jealousy, Genesis thirty-seven eleven, with hatred, Genesis thirty-seven uh, verses four, five, and eight, wanting to kill him, thirty-seven twenty, and by selling him into slavery, thirty-seven twenty-eight. They were wrong. They were responsible for their actions. But later, Joseph says, "God sent me before you to preserve life." Mm-hmm. Genesis 45, 5. Or at the very end of the story, like we already talked about, Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's amazing that despite everything that happens, Joseph still understands that behind it all, God is the one who sent him. So this isn't God merely allowing evil, but planning it out to accomplish good. It's an example where there are several evil deeds done by sinful men who are responsible and accountable for their actions, but there's an overriding providential control of God which accomplishes his purpose. Both are there. Both. Mm -hmm. And we don't deny either of them, but hold them both up equally, affirming them both. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So um, I've got... Several more examples. Shall we continue, or do you want to skip these and move on? Should we go do a couple more? Yes. All right. David. Here we see three influences contributing to one action. So, Second uh, Samuel twenty four one says the Lord incited David to take a census of the people, but later David saw this was a sin, saying uh, in verse ten, "I have greatly sinned in what I have done." And God punished the land for his sin. 2 Samuel 24, verses 12 through 17. God did this because the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So he used this as a means to, to punish or discipline the people of Israel. 2 Samuel 24, 1. This is key in understanding God's plan. But finally, the means that God used to incite David is revealed in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So we see three different influences contributing in different ways to one incident. To bring about his purposes, God worked through Satan to incite David to sin, but Scripture regards David as being responsible for that sin. All of that is happening at the same time. Okay. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. And there's that mystery area. But could we then say that um, when we sin and God determines that um, you know, the, the grace has worn out, we, we have lots of grace, he sends a lot of grace to us, but at, at whatever point the Lord determines, okay, there's going to be consequences for this. Mm-hmm. 
um, that he uh, removes his favor, his power to keep us, that holds us to keep us from sinning, um, that he removes that and uh, permits what would normally take place anyway. Sin without his power and intervention, the world would be in worse chaos than what it is. And oh, yeah. We would all degrade. It would be like prior to the flood. Yeah. Um, so is, would that be a it, fair... Yeah, and I think it... Yeah, it probably would be even worse than prior I mean, to the would flood. Would that be a fair thing to say? That sure. Well, okay, so two things. First, I would say... Uh, where do you see that in the Bible as an example, right? Yeah. Um, we see that kind of thing happening in Romans 1. Mm-hmm. Like God lets them have what they want. Yes. And they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. Right. Right? So there are natural consequences to our sin, and sometimes God does let us have what we want. Yeah. Right? Um, like, the, like in Egypt, or in the, in the desert, the quail. Sure, Yeah. He gives us what we want, mm-hmm. right? Um, but that was a, a that was a wanton craving. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That was different. Right, that they had. Right. No, no, no. That's helpful. Like a sinful desire, right? God allowed them to have it, but there were consequences for it, yeah. right? Um, I just think it's so funny. I can't. I cannot think about that story without thinking about the time that that passage was read as part of our worship service. And the person who read it said that the Israelites, instead of having a wanton craving, they had a wanton craving. Who knew that the Israelites craved Chinese food or whatever uh, in the wilderness? They, they were craving wantons. Did you keep a straight face when that happened? Um, I'm. I don't think I could. I did not laugh out loud. Um, and actually, I don't remember anybody laughing out loud. Gosh, I would. But I'm guessing that several people wanted to laugh out loud. And I confess, you did. I did catch eyes with uh, Drew Baldacci, and we sort of smiled. Um, what a scream! It's so great. It's so funny. So the, 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 those two examples. Um, you're, you're speaking in terms of apparent contradictions that are all, all true intention, yeah. and that tension is mysterious to us. It's mm-hmm. beyond our ability to understand or explain. Um, however, the, the difference between those two stories, I think, is also uh, relevant in terms of uh, our human dilemma. The first one, we, we get this sense of satisfaction because the scripture tells us God's purposes for it. Right for the saving of many. The second, we don't. We see thousands of people die as a consequence of, of David's census <clears throat> through through the judgment that, that comes about it. But we're never told. Well, what was the purpose of this? We well, we are actually. We're told that it was judgment on Israel for their sin. Indeed, yeah. indeed. But so it's not like a good, like from our perspective, it's it's not like, oh, God brought good out of this. Exactly. From our perspective, but he did bring good from his perspective. For the sake of justice. For the sake of justice, for the sake of his name, etc., etc. For the sake of his glory. Does it make sense? Yeah. The the rub here is that it it sort of we have we're relentlessly self-focused. We are relentless about putting ourselves at the center, and. And, and so, like, this is how we think, right? Um, but there is a greater good than what we consider good for ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's the glory of God, etc. Go. There's this blaring example that, like, is just flying at my brain. Yeah. Is with of Judas, the greatest evil that he did, is not the greatest good. Yeah. Um, that he betrayed Christ, and how there's. Or someplace in there, where, or maybe more than once, where it says he was—he's referred to as the one, the son of perdition, or whatever—that it was planned before time began that he was going to do this, that it was predestined, but yet it was his free, free choice. I mean, he was still evil. And when I was doing my Bible reading, and I, um, 
do a plug for Tara Lee Cobble, but she does, you know, I have a, a, a podcast that I listen to that corresponds with my daily Bible reading, and she oh. had a word picture that I'll steal from her um, when she was trying to explain how that could be, and she was saying when you, when a piano, when a note, if there's a grand piano in a room, and a note is played in the room, um, that's a certain note, the corresponding string will actually vibrate. Okay. And um, so she said, it's like Satan, when he's tempting us, is singing to the strands in our heart and causing them to vibrate. We have a choice if we're going to put the damper pedal down and keep mm. those from vibrating. Mm. We still have a, we have veto power over Satan, you know, um, through the power of God. But, and there's got to be more. Like, I, I, like I haven't fully unpacked it in my head, but the, the thing of, like, having these strings in our heart sung to by the Lord or by Satan, and then they vibrate accordingly, and we have a free will of how we will respond to that, to the temptation, and that, that foreknown and predestined, that, that rub is something, you know, we all struggle with, but I think that's a really good example. Judas is a good example of that where it was for no one and predestined that he do this evil thing. It's not just Judas. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's Pilate yeah. and Herod. Mm -hmm. I mean, so this is, Peter talks about this in, in Acts. I don't think he mentions Judas by name there, but he does mention Herod and Pontius Pilate. And so he says, um, um, sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth, uh, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, quote, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against, set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. He's quoting Psalm 2. Then, he, then Peter says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Is that for speaking? No, that's Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 4. Um, this is right after they get out of jail the second time. Um, so you know you, you have these places in the Bible like this one where they're smack they're laid like right next to each other like they're responsible and God determined this <laughs> so piano strings or no we're going to get to the same rub however we get there we're going to get there right um you know, in terms of free will, we just have to be careful about what we mean by free. Like free in what sense? We, we have to remember that we're not free in an absolute sense. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Um, we're governed by our nature. We're governed by our nature, and our nature is sinful. And it took me forever to figure out Early on as a Christian, um, I really struggled to understand like freedom in Christ, meaning we're free not to do whatever we want, but free now to choose Christ by the grace of God, to choose to obey, right? Like, so it's like this freedom is a different kind of freedom, but we're not absolutely free. I mean, that, and that's the kind of freedom that people want. That, that's the kind of freedom that they think that we have. But if you stop and think about it, we're not actually absolutely free. And an, a simple illustration makes it very clear that we're not absolutely free. So there's a, it's a logical or philosophical concept called compatibilism. Did you learn about compatibilism? In, yeah. It doesn't solve the mystery. So I'm just going to tell you up front. Like it doesn't fix it all. But it does help, I think. Um, are you free to go anywhere you want for dinner tonight? Can you have anything you want for dinner tonight? 
With limitations. So no. What limitations? Budget. budget. Okay. Time. Uh, budget is a limitation. Uh, you might not choose to go to whatever, Fogo de Chao or <laughs> whatever. Uh, so budget, time, health. health. Yeah. I can't eat it because I'm allergic right. or yeah. I can't eat it because my blood pressure will skyrocket or yeah. my cholesterol will go up. Okay, so you've got budget constraints, you have time constraints. How does time become a constraint? Geography. The distance. Yeah, so not only time, but distance. Mm -hmm. Health. What other constraints are on you? Moral. Moral. So, like, you're not going to eat. Depending on your conviction. Sure. Yeah, you might be convicted about not eating pork or something, mm -hmm. right? Or. Meat sacrifice items. Or uh, kale. You might have a moral objection. <laughs> I have a moral To I kale. Just, you might think, I, I am not going to eat kale. That's it. Um, Agreed. <laughs> what other constraints? You, that I joke, but taste your taste. Yeah, I was gonna say social or sociologically, like I'm not gonna choose to eat boa constrictor. Sure. Oh, oh. So you have like moral constraints, but you also might have taste constraints. We're up to six different constraints on where you're gonna eat dinner. Yeah. Now let's add another one. Um, what if you're gonna go out on a date? Oh, now you have all the constraints of the other person which include several of the ones that we just mentioned. Exactly. Right. So, now it's so now it's multiplied even more, right? So as soon as you stop and think about like just a simple decision of like, hey, what are we gonna have for dinner tonight? You might not have it available to you. Like, you know, like you ever, you ever think like, well, what do we even have in the house to make? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we're, we're not going out because of budget constraints, but we're still constrained because all we have is like pasta and and oh, we have some red sauce. We can make spaghetti or what? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, kale. Kale. We're not having kale. I promise you that. <laughs> um, we have like a kale patrol at the at the door. It <laughs> does not allow kale to enter the home. No, I, I like kale salad. It's good. Um, so, the idea here is that we're not absolutely free in making this decision for where we're going to go eat, right? And compatibilism says something like this. God and his sovereignty so controls all the factors that while you, while you still make your choice, it's still him moving you to make the choice at the same time. That doesn't answer the mystery, but it does sort of give us a, an idea of how it might be possible for those two things to happen at the same time. So then Paul, Paul in, his, in his Roman discourse, addresses that question then in terms of, well, then why does God judge me? Yeah. You know, and he turns around and says, well, you're, you're the pot. Who are you to question the pot? Yeah. Well, and also we would say, you're still responsible. Exactly. Which throws us back into the same place as before. But the idea is, the, the idea here is, is that this is why uh, regeneration precedes faith. God changes your heart so that when you come to Jesus, you do choose Jesus willingly, but it's because God has already worked in your heart to lead you to choose Jesus in the first place. You wouldn't choose him without God working in your heart beforehand. Does it make sense? Yeah. So, so like, yeah, it's willing, but God made it so that you would will what you want <laughs> to believe. You, do you know what I mean? Um, okay. Comment. Yeah, go. Um, I like, uh, I'm not positive this is the reference, but I think Psalm 119 around verse 32. So our freedom... Is we, we can, depending on the translation you read, we're free to run in the path of his commands. Mm. Because? He free, because he has set our hearts free. Right. Oh, I know what verse you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, he has set our hearts free yeah. from the grip of sin and death, you know, from that, and someone like, I'm not sure if I think Yeah, so this is the way mine uh, reads mm -hmm. in the ESV. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. But there's a footnote that says, uh, it can also be translated, for you set my heart free. And But the for there is because. Like the cause is. So because you enlarge my heart or because you set my heart free. Yes. Yes. I love that. Well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, like God, that's the whole point. Like, uh, that's the point of the new covenant. 
God gives us a new heart. He trades out our heart of stone for a heart of flesh. He writes his commands on our heart so that we'll obey him. I mean, we this verse is teaching the same thing, but we have even clearer and more specific scriptures when we go to like, um, like Ezekiel when he talks about the new covenant. So um, let me see if I can find it. He says, um, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? That's Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. Or the same thing is is um, Galatians 5. Right? So it, Galatians 5 is this battle between the spirit and the flesh. And who are you going to listen to, right? Yes. Um, so yes, yes, and yes, amen. And Jesus says that if the Son sets you free, you free indeed. Correct. But it's this kind of, it's not freedom to do whatever you want. It's yes. freedom to do what the Lord wants. Exactly. I was just looking that one up and it says, um, but now you have been set free from sin, but you're slaves to God. So it's not like yes. you're free right. from one thing, but you're not you're not free to do whatever. It's yes. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. We we have a new master. It, we don't have no master. We have a new master. Right. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, Romans 6 is great because it talks about how we're transferred from one kingdom into another kingdom. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, the there was a professor that I had in seminary. He used this illustration that's always stuck with me. He's like, imagine... Because um, it talks about being a slave there. He's like, imagine you're a slave in the South and there's the Emancipation Proclamation. You're free now. You no longer have to obey the voice of your former master. But imagine you're walking down the street and you hear your master's voice say something like, where are you going, boy? Come over here. Now, because of all of the times that that the slave has obeyed that former master, that voice is strong and powerful and he's going to be tempted to, to listen. But he doesn't have to listen anymore, right? He's free. Now, obviously, we're transferred from ownership of Satan, sin, the devil, to ownership of Christ and righteousness. That's Paul's point in Romans. It's amazing. It's awesome. It's wonderful. Um, okay, should we do... Uh, we have a few more minutes. I'll do just a couple more. Um, and then try to draw some, try to draw a, a few key thoughts, and then we'll be ready to tackle. I don't know if we'll get all through this, but we'll try to. We'll be ready then to look at the pastoral response next week and some of uh, some of the reasons God allows suffering. So um, we could look at Job. Um, here, I didn't even try. I didn't even try to summarize this in my own. I just copied and pasted a giant paragraph from Grudem's book, and I just put, Grudem is worth quoting at length. <laughs> so let me read it to you because he, he says it better than I could. Um, in the story of Job, though the Lord gave Satan permission to bring harm to Job's possessions and children, and though this harm came through the evil actions of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, as well as a windstorm, yet Job looks beyond those secondary causes and with the eyes of faith sees it all as from the hand of the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 1.21 the Old Testament author follows Job's statement immediately with the sentence, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job 1.22 Job has just been told that evil marauding bands had destroyed his flocks and herds, yet with great faith and patience in adversity he says, The Lord has taken away. Though he says that the Lord had done this, yet he does not blame God for the evil or say that God had done wrong. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
to blame God for evil that he had brought about through secondary agents would have been to sin. Job does not do this. Scripture never does this, and neither should we. End quote. That's a great, that's a great quote. He summarizes that so well, I think. Um, so wait, he says the Lord was taken away. Yeah. But... But it's through secondary causes, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, the windstorm, or something like that. Um, and in all this, Job recognizes God's hand at work, but never blames him for it. Never attributes it, you know, evil to God or, or God doing something unjust. Um, so, so, okay, key thought here. Oftentimes, God brings evil and destruction on people in judgment for their sin, but not always, as is the case with Joseph and Job. But this at least helps us to understand, at least in part, how God can righteously bring about evil events. The key is that all humans are sinful and fall short of God's glory. We all fail to honor God. Therefore, we do not deserve good from God. None of us deserves God's mercy or favor or blessing. We only deserve eternal condemnation. If God brings evil in order to discipline his people or lead sinners to repentance or punish the wicked in judgment or even to punish sinners, we could not accuse him of doing anything wrong or unfair or unjust. He would still be perfectly righteous. Ultimately, all these work together to bring him glory and to bring his people good. God is glorified both by the salvation of his people, but also in the judgment of sinners. Judgment glorifies God by displaying his justice, holiness, and his power. Now, of course, we already touched on, and we could add to this list of examples, um, Jesus. Um, I skipped a couple of, of examples on my list. We could put Jonah in this list. Um, the idea here is the, the, following, the following things. This is from Grudem, uh, pages 327 to 331. Number one, God uses all things to fulfill his purposes and even uses evil for his glory and our good. Um, we'll talk more about that next week with, from Romans 8, 28. Um, number two, nevertheless, God never does evil and is never to be blamed for evil. Secondary causes are real and humans are responsible for the evil that they do. As Jesus said, uh, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. There you go, Angie. That's, that's our verse, Luke 22, 22. Um, James says the same thing. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, a.k.a. the piano strings of their heart. That's the verse that I thought of when you were sharing that illustration earlier. Um, other options are not appealing. If we say that God himself does evil, then he's no longer good and holy, and who could trust him? If we say that God does not use evil, then we must say that there's evil in the universe that God didn't intend, doesn't control, and there's no guarantee that he'll fulfill his plans. He's not sovereign, and we lose all promises of God for the future. And that is not good. Go. Go ahead. Um, the, we associate suffering with evil. Yeah. And... Uh, well, there's, there's truth to it. I think that I want to offer another mystery, if I may, and that is those who suffer, uh, particularly as Christians, uh, God suffers with them. Not He's not a passive observer. It's not that oh, God is blind to my suffering, and it's not that He's He's even more evil. That He's there viewing my suffering and permitting it to happen with the reassurance. No, I mean in. Acts 9.24, Jesus says to, to Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Saul never met Jesus prior to that encounter, and so therefore the, the persecution was Saul's persecuting believers right. and standing by with Stephen. And so therefore to persecute believers was 
Jesus equates with persecuting him because he is in them. He dwells in us, right? right. That's the mystery. Christ is in us. And then Philippians 3, uh, 8 through 11, where Paul says, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Yep. And then Colossians 1, 24, where Paul then says, um, my sufferings are added to the cross, to, to Christ's sufferings, because when we suffer, God is suffering mm. in us. Yep. He's, he's sharing in those sufferings with us. So we're not alone, passively enduring, patiently waiting. God is with us. I find tremendous hope yeah. and comfort in that knowledge. Yeah, amen. 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 Um, I think that's a good place for us to stop. It's 1015. Can you tell me which book that is? Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. You already have that book, brother. Oh, it's in You should have it. It's that big, thick book that you have. Okay. Yeah, I think you have it. I haven't gotten through it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's it. I have a question for you.